In today's episode, we continue in our study of Esther with chapter 7. Irony, comeuppance, poetic justice, Haman's humiliation in the previous chapter is compounded. Now, as Queen Esther uses the occasion of that special feast she threw for King Ahasuerus and Haman to reveal Haman's treacherous plot against the Jews. Is Haman simply experiencing a string of bad luck? No, it's God's divine providence at work. Good morning and blessed Epiphany Tide. Today is Thursday, February 6th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word. Each weekday morning, we explore the Holy Scriptures to which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Thy Strong Word is brought to you by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. Find out all the ways they help ministries succeed by spreading the gospel with foreign language resources rooted in the Lutheran tradition. They have mission speakers, too, that will come and talk with your congregation. So check them out at lhfmissions.org. Well, joining the conversation this morning is my guest, the Reverend Doug Gribbena. He is mission advocate at KFUO. Good morning, Pastor Gribbena. Welcome back to the program. Well, good morning, Pastor Boo. It's so good to be back with you. Well, speaking of back, the last time we spoke on the air was October 27th of last year. And I don't know if you recall, but back then we were taking a look at Daniel. And so we were speaking about the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar II. Later on the book, the Persian Empire ruled by Cyrus the Great. And so now we're back in the courts of a Persian king, Ahasuerus or Xerxes. And things um, are still as crazy as ever. That that sounds like regular life, doesn't it? (laughs) It does. It does. I mean, kings will be kings, right? And, uh, (laughs) And life is what it is. And we've said this a couple times through the past six chapters. You know, people talk about Esther as being the book that never explicitly mentions God. And while that is true, and it's, well, frankly, the way I started off the the study, just because it doesn't explicitly mention, say, Yahweh or God, you definitely see God's handiwork everywhere. I mean, we use terms like um, coincidence, which, of course, is a real thing, but then things like luck and fortune, which are not real things. And so when you see all these things just coming together in ways that are brilliantly told to us by the great storyteller, whoever's writing Esther, you know, you have to just think, it's just amazing. How can you not see God at work? Well, amen. And, you know, we, he, is, he is seen in, you know, his invisible attributes are seen in this creative world. With It's not as if he's written his name, Yahweh, on the mountain <laughs> to say, oh, see, look over there. It, it is evident. Well, it is truly self-evident in our engagement, our exploration with nature, to know that there is a creator, and of course, the special revelation of Scripture to tell us exactly who that creator is. Well, you talked about. You said it earlier. You said this is a just sort of normal life, and in normal life, um, except when, of course, we are in Scripture, which is why it's so important we do gather around Scriptures. But in between those times, we're in church or reading the Bible. You know, yeah, it's not like God is speaking to us from the heavens or anything like that. We see his work in our life in ways that are not explicit. And if you're waiting for special divine revelation outside of Scripture, well, you're probably not going to get it. You know, it's going to be more like what's going on in the book of Esther. Your life is moving forward. Things are happening. And God is behind the scenes with his hand on all of it. And, you know, I'm reminded further back in Old Testament, you know, that we might pine for you know the the great lightning bolt in the sky 
And yet I think of the people of Israel being brought out of Egypt and they've seen all these plagues, all these wonders. They've seen the cloud of smoke, the, the fire, the lightning on the mountaintop. They saw that all with their own eyes. And yet when Moses was delayed, what did they do? They turned to a, a golden calf. So it's not as if having that you know, special physical revelation uh, is really effective against our sinful hearts. The only, the only thing we can go to is, is his word, which has the power to create and sustain faith. I was going to say tangentially related to that, piggybacking on your thought, rem- uh-huh. is, uh, I'm reminded of Luther's sermon on, on Christmas Eve or Christmas, and it was about how he referred to people saying, oh, if I were there— when Mary and Joseph came, I would have given them, you know, a, a place to stay. I would have given them shelter. I would have believed. And paraphrasing Luther, he basically said something to the effect of, no, you wouldn't have because you're all a bunch of sinners. Uh, that's a that's a very loose paraphrase. But <laughs> the point is, we do. You're right. We think, wow, if I was there, I, if I saw these things, then um, then I would be, you know, just that much more faithful or that much more affirmed in my faith. And that really is the language of sin, because think about those who don't believe, who are looking for God to basically explicitly reveal himself in ways other than he already has. And they'll say things like, well, if only if Jesus would come today, I would believe. Or if and then, of course, we're reminded of Jesus that said to uh, in the in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, if even a man should rise from the dead, they still won't believe they have. They have what they have uh, Moses and the prophets. Let them believe them. Amen. Well, as we get into our text, or I should say before it, uh, let's begin with some prayer, and I invite you to lead that for us. All right. Well, brothers and sisters, let us pray. Gracious Lord, Heavenly Father, by your speaking, you created all things. By your continued speaking, you sustain all things. And by the speaking of your word, you send forth your spirit to enliven faith within our hearts to call us by the gospel into the marvelous light of your Son, Jesus Christ. As we approach your word today, send forth your Holy Spirit to enliven our minds, to open our eyes, and to crush the hardness of our hearts that is so disbelieving that we may hear your word and firmly grasp it for our salvation. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Well, off the air, I told you uh, that chapter 6 and 7 of Esther is just one of my favorite I guess, passages in the Scripture because it's so brilliantly written. Um, in fact, I believe that if this were written, say, as fiction, people might look at it and say, oh, no, that's, that, it just, that's just too kind of crazy. There's too many things are coming together. It's too ironic to be believable. You really There's have to set you have to set aside your you know your disbelief. Go ahead. <laughs> too much coincidence, you would say, right? Well, it's too much coincidence, right? Mm-hmm. Naaman's having such bad luck, or Mordecai's having such good luck, um, and that word luck, and you know, and, and we use, we Christians use it. I, I mean, and sometimes we replace it because we think, well, if we don't say the word luck, we don't mean luck, so we'll say things like, "Oh, I'm so blessed." And while that's a good thing to understand that our blessings come from God. It's, it's often used as just sort of good luck, right? Blessings on your, your, your tournament this week. And we have to be kind of careful about understanding that blessings or even God's providence are really beyond our 
abilities to control. We can't. Uh, we can. We can certainly pray for God to be present, and He promises that He will. But we can't sort of bestow luck upon someone. And we see here just all of these things where if it were fiction, it would just be crazy. But truth is stranger than fiction. But we also have a very talented writer, storyteller in the author of Esther relating these true events in such a way that highlights God's providence and in many ways highlights some some irony. And really, if you don't read 6, really right next to chapter 7, it's very difficult to, well, I shouldn't say very difficult, but it, you know, you might miss some of what the great stuff that's going on. So I would invite you, brother, if you would just catch our listeners up if they didn't tune in last episode. And by the way, if you haven't, go listen to it. I mean, you know, don't pause this one, but go listen to it and then uh, come back. But yeah, check check it out. But anyway, brother, if you could catch them up, that would be wonderful. Well, sure, sure. Of course, we have this this really one-sided feud going on with Haman, and he just despises Mordecai because Mordecai didn't, you know, bow himself down and grovel in the dirt at, at Haman and, and show him the respect that Haman himself thought was was due to him. And if you go back to the to the end of chapter 5, you know, we have this grand plan then for uh, Haman's uh, Haman's uh, friends, fair weather friends, mind you, uh, plant this wonderful idea, build this huge gallows outside your house, seven stories tall in, in our modern age, and you could hang Haman on that. that. That would be really cool. You should totally do that. <laughs> And for some reason, I think of these guys as like the, the, the from the beach movies of the 60s. You know, these are the bad guys. <laughs> and, and Haman's like, yeah, that would be awesome. I should totally do that. So he does. He builds this huge gallows thinking he can hang Haman on this. And, and then we come into uh, to chapter six. Now, if, if you remember back, there had been a plot to assassinate uh, the king, Ahasuerus, and... And Mordecai had overheard this, a couple of the eunuchs who were going to assassinate the king. Mordecai makes known this to Esther, uh, who is the queen, and, and she makes it known to the king. And, of course, the plot is stopped. Well, as is sometimes the case, the king just kind of forgot to do anything to say, hey, thanks, Mordecai. <laughs> and in chapter six, the king is uh, curiously unable to sleep. And so he calls forth his servants and he says, you know, read for me the histories of our, of our empire and you know, wonderful deeds. You know, it'll help lull me to sleep. And lo and behold, what do they do? But they recall how Mordecai had helped to, uh, to stop this plot. And so the king's thinking, well, you didn't say what was done for him. Well, nothing had been done. And so the king says, well, we should do something for this guy. We need to honor him. He did a really wonderful thing for the kingdom and for me personally. And so he calls in Haman. So the king calls in Haman, his right-hand man, right? And he says, you know, what should we do for a guy who's done just an amazingly wonderful deed? You know, how should we honor him? Now, of course, Haman, in his own hubris, is thinking that the king's going to honor him. And so Haman devises what would be the most perfect honor for Haman. <laughs> and, and after telling the king, this is what you should do for this wonderful fellow you're talking about. Well, the king says, well, go, go then. And you should do that for Mordecai. <laughs> you yourself, Haman, go and make sure that Mordecai gets all this accolade, all this honor. 
And so Heyman is just, <laughs> the wind is out of his sails. He is in lowest spirits of all. And as he's in the midst of this, and his Fairweather friends are saying, uh-oh, oh no, uh, now, now, you know, your fortunes have turned, Heyman, Mordecai's on the rise, you're going down. I don't know. While they're saying this, we come into, well, just the end of chapter six brings us into chapter seven. So while his friends are saying, well, you know what? It's tough luck for you, Heyman. <laughs> You're on the outs. Oh, well, the eunuchs arrive to bring Haman and the king to Queen Esther's feast. Dun, dun, well, dun. Like a clip. Yeah, that's where we are. And so we are going to read today Esther, uh, the very last verse. All the way, uh, sorry, Esther chapter six, the very last verse, all the way through. Right now, we're going to do chapter, or sorry, verse six of chapter seven. Ooh, sorry for the mistakes. It's been kind of a long, long morning already. Uh, here we go. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. So the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed to be killed and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. And then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And that's a good place to end for now. So, so we have here the king and Haman went into this feast with Queen Esther, but it seems like this happens actually the second day, and they're drinking wine after the feast. He he had asked her before what she wanted, and it's, she seemed kind of hesitant to bring this up. Maybe because I don't know, she's trying to do it the right way, or maybe she's afraid of the king. Maybe he's on board with Haman. I don't, I don't know what. I'm not sure what what her hesitation was. Well, you know, one thing I was remiss in mentioning in my little recap was that this feast here in chapter 7 is the second feast that Esther has given, inviting both the king and Haman to it. Now, she had done a first feast, and this was before Haman had sort of been all puffed up with himself. Part of that first feast, you know, gives Haman this sense of, of uh, importance with the queen has invited the king and me to the feast with her. So that's sort of how he's built up. And now when he's at his lowest point, he's invited again to a feast in the midst of his sorrow, in the midst of his friends saying, uh, you know, oh, woe is you. You're, you're done for. Before he can even formulate any sort of uh, a plan to redeem himself or to, to rescue himself, uh, he's invited and taken to this second feast Again, the king and Haman to the queen's second feast. And it is a sort of curious coincidence that that this, this word at the end of chapter 16, in the verse 14, 
while they were yet talking with him. So in the midst of this discussion, uh, boom, come in the eunuchs and pull Haman away right away before he can really even sort of recover and process what's going on. And so he's thrust back into this very uh, powerful and important setting between the king and the queen and himself. And of course, then there's on the second day, so they've been feasting and imbibing, and he's sort of been having to sit there and enjoy the company all the while in the back of his head, that worry is is sort of eating away at him and uh, and the, the sort of self-concern and the, the sort of uh, enraptured selfishness that is really just sort of indicative of Haman here. Uh, it's coming in and and now he's having to deal with this uh, in, in a really uncomfortable sort of setting. So for clarification, the first feast happened back in chapter 5, verse 4, Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. And then the king said, bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther has asked. And then, of course, they went to that feast. Here in chapter 7, when it says, so the king and Haman went into feast with King Esther, and on the second day. So this isn't the day after this feast. That really is just referring to the second feast. Is that what I'm hearing? Well, you know, I think the the, the text is a little ambiguous. I hadn't actually considered that um, I, I my initial thought I think it's sort of the plain reading of the text is that you know this is a feast of of great duration, uh, and so they've come into the second day. Now, perhaps, Pastor Boo, you you know the, the the Hebrews often considered days with you know with the end of the sun, and so the next day begins at sunset. Now, being that this is a Hebrew author, um, this may be that the feast is now extended from the daylight hours into the evening considered the second day. I don't know if the Persians did the same sort of accounting of time or if they would have, you know, as we Westerners have it, you know, oh, it's midnight, it's the middle of the night, so therefore it's the next day. <laughs> and I'm not familiar with how Persians would have counted their days, but being a Hebrew author, I think this feast has been of, of such a duration that it's now extended into the evening hours. I think that's a great way to reconcile it because I think that you get the same result either way. So if you think in our terms of keeping time and on the second day, it still gets the same point across, which is that this is a long feast. Whether the long feast was into the night or whether it kind of actually went into the daylight, I suppose it's a little irrelevant. The reason, But I'm glad that you brought that up because I hadn't considered it. That makes a, a ton of sense. But the point that I think I was trying to figure out is that is this feast happening on the same day that Haman had to parade Mordecai through town on, on the back of the king's horse? So, and if it is, and I think that, I do think it is, that that he is on a roller coaster of emotions in this day, most of them going straight down. Um, I think well, the only thing that's keeping him uh, sane, I suppose, in the midst of all what he might consider bad providence from the gods is that he still has that decree from the king that all the Jews are going to be killed because he was slighted by Mordecai. And, and so, he was looking forward to it, yeah. Yeah, and he's looking forward to that. But otherwise, I, there he is drinking and drinking away his troubles with the king. I think that that, uh, that, that word while in verse 14 of chapter 6 makes that, that connection, that this is the same day. You know, he had paraded Mordecai around. He's gone back to his home. 
and he's been telling his wife and his friends what terrible luck this day was. And then pff, while they're discussing, he's brought off to this feast. And so, uh, you know, I, 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 yes, this is one contiguous event. You know, he's paraded around Mordecai, you know, his, his, his enemy, and he's trying to console himself with his wife and his family, and he's whisked away to have this feast and is, and is still there as the king then, you know, says to Esther, you know, in, in a courtly manner, Queen Esther, you know, what is this wish that you would like? That's the third time he's asked her this question. Which um, is know. really sort of a binding moment now. You know, I, mm -hmm. not once, not twice, but thrice I have asked you and I've promised that I will give you really what, whatever it is you ask. Yeah. We don't get the inflection from the king in the written word all the time, and in this case we certainly don't. But I imagine it's, uh, you know, she can sense the hmm, irritability in his voice. I don't know what the word to use, but basically, as you said, come on, tell me what you want. Tell me what you want. Well, it would be interesting to get into the mind of Ahasuerus uh, or Xerxes, whether or not, you know, he's um, intrigued by the, the fact that his his queen is is playing coy with him. He's not used to that, so this is kind of refreshing. It's like, oh, oh, oh we're going to play this game. Well, I'll play the game with you. This is kind of fun. I never get to do this, right? You know, right. I say something, people always answer me right away. So perhaps he's been sort of, you know, sort of, uh, this is humorous to him. He kind of enjoys this little game. Or, on the other hand, maybe he is getting a little bit exacerbated. He's like, yeah, okay, I like the feast. This is great. And now, I've asked you three times. Yeah. <laughs> you, you I think the tell. last queen who kind of stood up to him, though, we know what happened to her. <laughs> and, well, yes. Now, that was just sort of a blunt refusal. This, uh, queen sure. Esther doesn't play this courtly game. <laughs> well, and, and Queen Please. Esther, what we've talked about a couple times while studying this on the program, is that Queen Esther is a very obedient person. You know, it describes her as obedient to Mordecai. We see her obedience to the Lord. We see her obedience to um, Haggai, the, the guy who was training her when she was a virgin. And we see her obedience to the ways of the Persians and the courtroom manners. And so she, or I should say, court king's court manners. So she's, she's playing the game, so to speak, in the sense of, she is doing everything according to the book so as not to arouse the anger of the king, and that's part of her success. She's working within the system as opposed to Vashti who was just like, you know, forget you, I'm not going to do it. And she's not working outside the system in terms of, well, I'm going to go out here and through Mordecai we're going to raise up and revolt against the king because she just knows that's not going to work. So I, I, see, I see her working within the system. Yeah, and, and, you know, and so she's now really come to the point where she is – She's ready to uh, to make this request known, but there is this sort of divine providence of of, of permitting that time to build Haman up and to bring him low. That that his that his defeat, we will say, is is absolute in every aspect of his of his stature in, and even in every aspect of his life uh, that he is fully defeated. In her response, we see also her ability to play the game, so to speak. Verse 3, then Queen Esther answered the king to this third request. If I have found favor in your sight, O king, of course, knowing the whole time that she has, and if it pleases the king, right? So basically, it's all up to you. It's your, you're the king. She's building on this language, you know, this, this petition, this request, um, 
and she answers him with these, you know, twofold things. She says um, she wants her own life to be spared if he favors her, and she knows he does. And then she requests the lives of her people be spared. And it's interesting the way in which she presents the the facts of the matter. I, I tend to be a bit of a sometimes a oh, well. I'm a Taurus, right, on those astrology signs, right? <laughs> Bullheaded. I sometimes attack the problem head on. If I were Esther, I'd have probably been like, well, this guy sitting over here wants to kill me and all my people. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> she really builds it up. She does. She she introduces the problem and not the problem maker, right? And and so she, in a sense, this is playing that game, permits the king to to dictate the uh, the way in which this problem is addressed. Now, here's the problem. I don't want to die. I don't want my people to die. And the king, understandably, goes, well, of course, I don't want you to die either. <laughs> but there's probably these questions that are popping up in in Ahasuerus's mind. You know, when she sort of makes a, a revelation here that she's probably not made to him before. When she says, my life, okay, fine. Someone's trying to kill the queen. This is not good. But then she says, my people. And I'm, mm-hmm. I'm fairly certain in his mind he's going. When you say my people, right, right. You're talking about all of the Persians. Uh, wait, why wouldn't you just say who's attacking the kingdom? So she she really sort of tips the hand that that she is not perhaps who he had thought she was, uh, and and leaves it sort of in this ambiguous question. I think there's a couple brilliant strategies going on here. On the one hand, if she would have began with saying, Haman has done something evil, well, as much as as King Ahasuerus is infatuated with his new queen, uh, of course she's been queen for a little while now, but still, he he probably has a quite a bit of loyalty to Haman. I mean, you know, Haman's been around a long time. <laughs> exactly. So it's gonna put up a wall of defense. So now you better say something good. But then and she doesn't even begin with there's someone wanting to kill all the Jews because, I mean, what does the king of Hashawaris care? <laughs> so she starts with herself and then and, – and please correct me or, or keep, me, keep, keep me from going too far. But then she serves as not just an intercessor but a redeemer for the Jews because then she connects his fondness with her then reveals that the Jews are her people so that now his fondness for her is connected to the people. So she stands in the place of the Jews and basically says, if you're killing all of them, you have to kill me. And if you love me, then why wouldn't you love my people? And, you know, there's a point that uh, that I think we've overlooked is in reality, who is it that is that is going to be killing all the Jews? The one whose signet ring is affixed to this this death order. It's the king himself. King is the one who is enacting this this slaughter by his authority, even though it was you know suggested to him by another. And so, really, it is it is the fact that that she, she really could have just said, "You are planning to kill me and all my people." <laughs> and and so she's she's introducing the problem and almost sort of letting him work it out himself. Well, she takes it to a Nathan and David kind of realm, right? Like, here's this mm-hmm. bad problem I want to tell you about, 
and uh, surely you don't think this is a right thing, you know? And then it, now this is her Atahayish moment. Instead of saying, you are the man, though, she's going to say, Haman is the man. Right, right. Well, I'll tell you what, folks, don't go anywhere. We're going to think a little bit more about this and pick up this conversation when we get back. But uh, there will be just a few messages, and we'll return with Esther, Chapter 7. This is the voice of a mother in the faraway country of Georgia, reading to her six-month-old son about Jesus from a Bible storybook written in the Georgian language. The child's Bible was given to her by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation, and the Holy Spirit is working powerfully through your support of LHF to make events like these happen every day. Help another family learn of the Savior. Learn how at lhfmissions.org. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo. With me today is the Reverend Doug Gribbenaw, pastor, uh, sorry, pastor and mission advocate at KFUO. In fact, I'm going to do that again. Here we go. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo. And with me today is the Reverend Doug Gribbenaw, pastor and mission advocate at KFUO. If you have any questions or comments about today's show or you just want to say hello, feel free to email me at pastorboo at gmail.com. You can also find me on Facebook and send me a message there. Thank you so much for listening and telling others about Thy Strong Word. You can have them listen on the air, on demand at kfuo.org, or through your favorite podcasting app. Even KFUO has its own app, so check that out. Well, Pastor Gribbenaut, before the break, we were just sort of right on the edge of, of talking about the king's response to Esther's request. He's asked her three times. Now she's finally told him what it is. She does it in this brilliant kind of way. Um, what else can we take from that as we move on? You know, I think it would be helpful for us to hear her full response. So perhaps we should, we should listen to verses 3 and 4 in their entirety and then kind of address each piece. Let's do it. Then Queen Esther answered and said, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent. For our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Yeah, that's, that, there's a lot to unpack there. There really is. And and so she begins first by saying, you know, introducing that, that her life is in danger and the life of all her people. Well, how and in what way? Well, they have been sold. They've been handed over uh, and not just to uh, any old destiny, but to be to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. And then she sort of backtracks it, saying, you know, and it's only because of the severity of what is going to happen, because we, we are now being destined to die and be wiped off from the face of the earth. If it had been anything less, then, then so be it. And, and in a way, almost implying that even to be a slave to the king is, is a great and honorable thing. Uh, and so she would have just accepted that as such, and, and, and so be it. But this is actually a, 
an injury to the king and to his kingdom. So it's not just a, uh, you know, the sort of the loss uh, of a personal thing, but but that this event is actually a, a, a negative effect on his kingdom. It's an assault against the king and his peoples, uh, even the peoples that he didn't necessarily recognize fully to be his people. Uh, and, and so I think she really presents this um, in a deferent way, you know, playing that courtly game, but also opening his eyes to to the worth of of the Jewish people in his kingdom. That these are these are a benefit to you. These, these people are are good, uh, and and really should be defended and not and not wiped out. Well, we remember that Haman, when he first proposed this back in chapter three, verse nine, he said, "If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed." And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So, yeah, there's definitely this idea from Queen Esther that she's saying, listen, you, you know what's going on. She has quoted the edict word for word in terms of the annihilation, the kill, destroyed, annihilated. So maybe he's a little surprised that this is such common knowledge, um, although he shouldn't be because it was supposed to be disseminated everywhere. And, and printed in all languages, yeah. <laughs> right, right, right. But then she, but then what she brings up, though, um, I, I think she's bringing up. I guess people might argue otherwise, but she's bringing up. Well, Haman has promised to pay you ten thousand talents. What is that to the lost revenue from these people, perhaps, or even the the lost benefit of their um, their labor to the people? In fact, you could have even made them slaves. And they could have worked for you, and you wouldn't have lost as much as you will lose if they are destroyed. And I, that's how I've always read it. And, you know, it, it struck me that uh, when you said he seems sort of surprised, perhaps even this, this sort of grievous act was really not all that out of the norm for a king. He even sort of forgot it. You know, oh, Haman, yeah, go ahead and you you do that. You know, put my signet ring on it, yeah, whatever. Next Next order of the day, next business. It, it, perhaps even you know this is this was just order of the day, and he he didn't think anything of it. And so, in a sense, it's possible, not knowing, of course, what's what's going on in his mind, that he had really just kind of forgotten about all this, and is and is now remembering. Oh, right, there was that thing, mm-hmm. <laughs> that thing Haman had proposed. Oh, right, yeah. Like I thought, I told you to take care of that. Why is my wife bothering me? But. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Hopefully not like that, but yeah. no, no, no. It's uh, but without knowing what is in his mind, he, I mean, perhaps he he knew of it and, and he was fine with it, or he it was so trivial, you know, the, the wholesale slaughter of a whole set of people that you know this king just yeah out of his mind, yeah, yeah, it's done, Can take care of it. Well, and his answer, I think, is why I think he's surprised. So then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, "Who is he, and where is he, and who has dared to do this?" Uh, in the Hebrew, um, it's like whose heart has been filled, you know, to do this. And this is where Esther has her atahahish moment, right? It's it's you, man. <laughs> but of course, she doesn't because I guess what I'm saying is, wouldn't he know? Wouldn't he know all of these things? But I guess what we have to remember is she still hasn't said who her people are. Indeed. So when he says, who has dared to do this, I guess I wonder if he's also thinking a little bit more about just the fact that it's going to affect her or or what. But he knows about the Jewish thing. I mean, you, you're right. He passed it off to Haman. But certainly, 
I don't know. I mean, did he really just forget that he ordered the execution of, you know, genocide against the whole people? I mean, maybe he did. Like you said, maybe it's just common. This is every day for him. But but Esther uh, doesn't say she says a foe and an enemy. And then she points her accusing finger at Haman, this wicked Haman. Who's sitting on the couch right next to her. Yeah, I always imagine that his cup is like halfway in his mouth and he's got like a big turkey leg in the other hand and he just kind of drops his mouth open like, oh no, I've been busted. You know, I think you you point out a good a good a good fact though that the king's answer, he says, Who is this? Who would dare to do such a thing to attack my queen? Um, and where is he? You know, I'm I'm gonna take care of this right now. Right, right. I'm gonna fight for her honor. We yeah. have we have Will Smith going on the stage slapping Chris Rock. Here's uh, King Ahasuerus going to take care of him. And yeah, and so she says, you know, a foe and an enemy, you know, and and then she, and the wicked Haman, you know, his counsel is is false. He's he is not a good friend of yours. You shouldn't listen to this guy. Well, um, and let's think about it. His counsel is false. The Jews were of no threat to King Ahasuerus, and only a threat well, I was just to him. Well, yeah, exactly. Haman is the problem here because you said earlier, you know, you you said, which is used in the scriptures, that, you know, that Mordecai is Haman's enemy. Um, Yeah, but as you also said, it's one-sided. Haman's the only one worked up over the fact that Mordecai won't bow down to him. I mean, Mordecai is just doing his job at the gate. Yeah, he won't bow down. He doesn't like you. But it's sort of well, like, fact, Heyman, he's not going to be the last guy that doesn't like you. You need to learn some coping mechanisms. But instead, he's going to obliterate a whole ethnic race. Yeah, Heyman, you know, devised this great laudable honor for, for well, he thought it was for himself. Ends up being for Mordecai. How would Heyman have acted after that? Man, he would be preening around like a peacock on, you know, on Easter Sunday. And instead, we hear in chapter 16 or 6, uh, in, in verse 12, after all of these honors, right, riding around, wearing the king's clothes, then Mordecai returned to the king's gate. He goes right back to what he's supposed to do. The, 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 it didn't go to his head, right? He is the I surmise that he thing. was, I surmise that he was embarrassed. I, I can just see Mordecai sitting on the back of this horse and the horse is wearing a crown and he's just like, probably he's probably, I don't know. He's like, why does the horse have a crown? But anyway, and he, he's kind of covering his face. Like, I hope no one sees me up here because this is a party that's been thrown for Haman and, and he's now sitting at someone else's birthday party and it's awkward for both of them. That's a wonderful analogy. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, so Mordecai's just, he's doing what he's supposed to do. He is, he is a faithful servant of the Lord, a faithful servant of, of his King. And, uh, and, and he does his job. He gets these honors. He goes right back to work. It doesn't change him. Uh, Haman, on the other hand, this, this elevation, of power has been just sort of going to his head, going to his head, and and puffing him up. Uh, very susceptible to uh, to pride, and you know what they say: pride cometh before the fall. It's a perfect example of that. This foe and enemy is a surprising turn of phrase. Um, you know, Esther three ten. Um, we're told so the king took his signet ring from his hand and he gave it to Haman the Agagite the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And there was mm-hmm. some speculation when we first covered that on whether Haman was being called an Agagite 
uh, sort of as a slur or a derogatory term by the author just to describe here's a guy who embodies being angry with the Jews for no reason. Or if coming into this, Haman sort of was already carrying this hatred for the Jews, except that's kind of countered from the fact that Haman gets mad at Mordecai before he learns that he's a Jew. But mm-hmm. regardless, we still see here this this being depicted as this Jewish people, the people of God, versus their enemies. And so when Esther stands up and um, says, a foe and an enemy, I wonder if it's a little bit of a, dump, uh, um, a double Don't entendre. Right. Yeah, he's an enemy of the king for sure, not a good friend. But here she is pointing out the enemy of, of God. And really an, an enemy, I mean, let's be honest, an enemy of of God and the lineage that is to come through these people. That is the, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Uh, so, you know, Haman is an enemy, really, of everyone. And Haman was terrified before the king. As all people who are wicked, as all foes and enemies of God's people and God himself should be terrified before the king. In this case... King Xerxes, King Hashuerus, and of course, eternally before the king of the universe. And in this case, also before the queen. He has fear before this young woman, and not because she is exercising her strength in domination, but because she is obedient, working through the system, and is uh, telling the truth. And I have to commend Xerxes, uh, you know, Hashuerus. That uh, what he does next. <laughs> Let's hear he, what he does next. Yeah. He has self-control, we'll say. <laughs> yeah. So verses 7 through 10, just a few verses, but also a lot in there. And this is going to be the rest of our chapter. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine, as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? And as the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance of the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, you'll remember, is standing at Haman's house. Fifty cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. Oh, so much, so much. Yeah, so so they're they're doing their drinking, and he arose from in his wrath and he goes away. He leaves the presence of the person. Um, I think there are two things going on here. You had alluded to the fact that maybe he's uh, calming down a little bit. Some of the sources I read, though, that this was also a common um, symbol that the person was basically going to be condemned. The king leaves their presence. He's meditating on their fate. Either way, um, he doesn't he doesn't just attack Haman despite his anger earlier. Well, yeah. And, and, and the fact that that uh, that Haman is is terrified and then, you know, he he decides to beg for his life. He knows that. That punishment is coming. So, you know, really, the, the king is left, I think, to, to stay the rage so that it is a just punishment, um, but also 
a clear indication that, you know, Haman, your your day of reckoning is at hand. He departs, and and you know, to well, I'll, I'll give Haman a little credit. You know, he is he's a political animal. Uh, he sees that his favor is gone with with the king, and he sees how astute the queen is. And he knows that his only recourse at this point is to is to beg uh, with nothing else left than than just his, his tears from from the queen who has implicated him. Um, Perhaps I don't know how much he would have known about the queen's faith. I mean. Or certainly considered it. I mean, he doesn't like all the Jews. He's going to kill them. So I don't know that he has much esteem for them or their faith oh, or their not God. Not her, but as much for her power, her position. This is right. the queen. Queen yes, has been so able to take me down. <laughs> She's the only one now who could who could save me from from the. So king. it's not as it's not like she's appealing to her. He's not appealing to her because she has the best chance of having mercy. It's just that clearly, this he is the one in else. charge. This is <laughs> yeah, the woman in charge. That's right. And the king has already decided, essentially. He's walked out. He knows what's going to happen when he walks back in. But then, in a, in another turn of providence and irony, the king comes back. Now, imagine this, though. Well, actually, before I do this, I will say, yeah. uh, Haman doesn't seem to refute it. He doesn't defend it, or at least it's not recorded. It's not recorded that he defends himself or refutes it. He literally just sort of begs for, for his life. Um. So um, I imagine, and again, folks, this is imagining. We have to sometimes fill in the details. I imagine that maybe during this begging for his life, it involved excuses. It involved anything he thinks he can talk her into it. And by the sheer fact that he's, you know, prostrate on the couch with her, begging, 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 it's at this moment when the king returns, maybe, maybe if this were a movie, we would have seen the king in the palace go, you know, I think I'm going to give Haman a second chance. And then he comes back in where they were drinking and Haman's all over Esther. That's all he sees. And he says, are you going to assault the queen? Assault is a code, right? Code word. Are you going to assault the queen in my presence in my own house? I mean, did he really think that was what was going on? Or was he just so mad that he couldn't think straight? Maybe it didn't cool off in the garden. I don't know. But, even his attempts to beg for his life just gets him in more trouble. Well, and the fact is that in Persian culture, if if you were a man on the dining couch with a, with a woman, like I mean, that was that was that was hugely taboo. Right, it's just you, as bad. The deed had been done. Do yeah, you don't do that. You certainly don't do that with the king's wife, his queen. Right, I mean. If if there was any chance that Haman was going to just have a banishment or you know a, a slap on the wrist, that's gone. I mean, he is he is toast at this point. And the irony is that the and I wonder if Haman had really worked it out in his head that Esther was a Jew, or if in the panic of all of this event he he never even thought of that. But the irony is that the one who was the enemy of the Jews. Jews really had nothing against Haman, you know, personally, but he's just has this vitriol for him. The one who had orchestrated for their annihilation is now begging, begging a Jew for, for his life, begging the ones that he's, he, he'd committed and sold to destruction and now begging from her, uh, from the Jews for his life, that he not be sold to destruction. 
A wonderful irony. And notice that she's not really given the opportunity to say one way or another what she would do. Like, we don't know if she would have taken this as a repentance or, or taken mercy on him and tried. It doesn't, it doesn't matter because of the situation of what happens. Because the and, king comes back in. <laughs> yeah, he comes back in. He's, she's on, he's on the couch with her, groveling all over her. I mean, if, if his senses had left him, he probably would, had his hands on her arms. I mean, it could have been just exactly what the king thought he saw. It might have looked just like that. And so as soon as he makes the accusation, even the king doesn't really say what he's going to do. They just knew what was going to happen. <laughs> the attendants are well-versed in what the king does and what he says and why he says it. They immediately cover his face which is an unusual movement they they put i imagine it's like a sack or a burlap bag or i don't know but they cover something with his face and um they haul him off well and the the word the phrasing is as the word left the mouth of the king and and the, the phrasing here is that this is this is now a declaration you know the king is saying this is how it shall be he's not just it's just not average everyday speech the king has now said you know Will you, you know, this is, this is it. Will you even assault the queen in the presence in my own house? He's, he's sort of making a, a legal declaration. This is the legal accusation. You're now going to assault my queen. And we all know what's going to happen. And so the, the king basically orders him removed and they throw his, throw a blanket or something over his face. Yeah, they throw a bag over him. I mean, because he is, yeah. he is a condemned man. He is hauled away. Um, and, and it's only in the next verses that we find out what particular, uh, brand of condemnation is going to come, and it's and it's another twist of irony, oh, and great. a rather fitting one at that. I'm sorry, it's I just think it's great, right? Because here's Harbona. Now you'll recall Harbona, folks, from uh, Esther one verse ten. Um, the uh, the king's heart was merry with wine, and he commanded Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagatha. Zethar and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of the king. So this is one of the king's main right-hand men eunuchs. And Harbona, who I think is just clever, he's like the hero of this part of the story. He goes, you know what, king? <laughs> There's some 75-foot gallows out by Haman's house. Why don't you use those? I love it. I'm sorry. I, I know it's kind of dark humor, but, but it, it's just like this. If you appreciate literary irony and then realize that all this is happening at God's will, um, it really demonstrates that, you know, here he is begging for forgiveness from the queen, which isn't even the person he should be begging for forgiveness from. And then the king comes and he, you know, he's trying by his own reason or strength to kind of get out of the punishment. The king condemns him and the condemnation ends up being the same condemnation he wanted to rend on Mordecai. So so what he wanted to happen to others ends up happening to him. There's so much of our biblical wisdom that's being um, shown on display here in the negative, like what happens when you aren't living uh, the way that God wants you to live. You, you reap what you sow. That's another one of those. It, it's a very biblical truth. Right. Uh, you know, now what you practice comes comes back upon you. Now, Harbona has been in the service of the king, you know, so he sees, you know, the inside baseball. He he knows what goes on behind the curtain. He's been there since before Haman even was elevated to this sort of, you know, first man position. The way that Haman behaves, his characteristic, his, his pridefulness, and his really his, his disregard for others, I, purely by inference, 
would expect that Haman was probably not a wonderfully kind person to even the king's eunuchs. And so there may even be a bit of Harbona saying, you know, you have been a jerk for who knows how many years. And uh, this is now I get a little payback too. <laughs> you know, I, I yeah. can almost think Harbona saying, yeah, I, I've got this. <laughs> it's like you're the uh, it's like you're the security officer at the corporate offices and then you get to escort out the mean boss who's always been mean to you. Yeah, that's exactly what's going right. on. <laughs> I love it. But, you know, what we see here, though, is in his hubris, he doesn't only build these gallows, but he builds them, you know, seven stories high. They're gigantic. They're outside of his own house, which when we talked about this, we talked about whether uh, why, you know, is that is it just because it was convenient? Is it because um, he didn't want to? I don't know. He didn't have access to other places. Did he want Mordecai to hang literally while he watched? I, I Who knows why? But here he is back at his own house. And I think it's worth saying that the gallows here are worth reminding folks. They aren't exactly, at least most scholars don't believe that they are like a ropes hanging. This isn't like a hanging kind of thing that actually it's like a giant spike and more akin to a crucifixion than to a hanging. And so it's just this gory, horrible punishment. That's even worse than you might imagine like a hanging. And so well, you know, go ahead. the irony too is I, I I think that uh, he'd built these gallows and, and then Haman has to parade Mordecai around. And so, you know, at the, at the end of that, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. And almost in a sense, I think Mordecai built the gallows to say, thus it shall be done to the man who dishonors Haman. Mm, <laughs> and this yes. was that was so prominent, so large and right outside his house to say, you cross me that's what you get yeah that makes a ton of sense you know that way the people who don't even know are making the connections right obviously this guy made Haman mad I don't want to make Haman mad and all of it comes back to bite him all of it mm -hmm. um, you know so we have it here the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai whose word saved the king so Harbona even is I mean he's just even reminding the king who evidently is forgetful at this point Remember Mordecai, the guy you forgot to reward, and then the you guy rewarded. To kill. Yeah. Yeah. This is the guy. All right. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I, I don't know if any other world leaders constantly need people by their side reminding them of things, but here is this situation. And he's standing, you know, in his 50 cubits high, and the king says, Well, hang him on that then. Uh, and then I imagine the king went on and immediately forgot everything. No, I'm just kidding. We know what happens in the next chapter. But they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. So just in case you miss the irony, um, the, the author to Esther here really kind of spoon feeds it to us. They, they hung him on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. And then the last verse is interesting. Uh, then mm -hmm. the wrath of the king abated. Like, that's it. He's been punished. I'm, I'm kind of over it. I, I don't know. I just I find that striking. And the, my thought is that, and, and I don't want to necessarily position Ahasuerus in, in the seat of God, but in the very same way, you know, the Lord's wrath, uh, it, it, it demands satisfaction, if we will say. And that is that, that, that sin, uh, sin requires death. To sin is to trespass God's God's word, God's law, God's will. Uh, 
and and the punishment is is death. And so our Lord Jesus Christ takes our punishment upon himself to be hung on on the gallows on the tree. And the Lord's wrath against sin is abated because it, he is both the just and the justifier, right? The, his the trespass of his law must be must be satisfied. The the, the law demands that as you sin, you should die. So a death is required for it to be satisfied, for it to be abated. And so in the same way, this the, the sin, the trespass against the king, the betrayal against Ahasuerus here, it, it must be, be sated, it must be satisfied, it must be abated by the death of the one who has trespassed. I think you're precisely right. I mean, far from being a Christ figure, Haman is an antichrist figure in the in the sense that he is against God's people. He hasn't come to save them. He wants to destroy them. And the king, his punishment for this antichrist is to crucify him on this 75-foot gallows for everybody to see. And while I do not think, and maybe people would argue with me, I do not think we're meant to purposefully connect this to Christ because everything we do is just soaked in Christ's word, though. It just makes sense that it's going to remind us of the Christ, who, instead of being rewarded by the king or God, was punished and didn't deserve it. But he was punished on our behalf, as you so eloquently put. And so, you know, while we're not saying, or I don't think you're saying, that this is the the connection you're supposed to make, that the intention from the author of Esther is to point to Christ, um, how can it not? How can we not see justice being served against someone who deserves it and be reminded that justice that we deserve is served on Christ by on Christ uh, on our behalf, and, and that's uh, that's the gospel. <laughs> and then the wrath of the king is is abated, uh, so it is it is done, it is it is finished. You know this this the punishment is done, and Ahasuerus, you know, is it, um, his rage has left him. Perhaps we might say, um, because his wrath is now is now been meted out. <laughs> That's right. right. Well, brother, that's going to have to do it for us because we're at the very end of the show. A lot of stuff in there. Tomorrow we're going to get into uh, Chapter 8. But for now, I'd like to thank my guest, the Reverend Doug Gribbenaw, mission advocate at KFUO. And Pastor, thank you, Pastor, for being on the show. Oh, thanks for having me on. And and thanks be to God for, for Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen. Dear Saints, tune in tomorrow. As we move into Chapter 8, we'll hear about the fallout from Haman's treachery and how Queen Esther and Mordecai are used by God to save their people. Until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray, Father, keep us in thy strong word. Amen.